Australian True Crime, the nation's leading independent true crime podcast, is hitting the road with our live show. We're coming to Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane this July and tickets will be available starting May 10th at 9.30am sharp. They sold out in two hours last time, so do not dilly-dally. We know the suburbs of Australia are teeming with some of the most intriguing and chilling true crime stories the world has ever heard. Don't miss the chance to dive deeper and get involved with a live Q&A. With over a million and a half downloads monthly, these tickets will sell out. So keep an eye on our social media pages and check the podcast bio for direct links to purchase yours as soon as they're released on Friday, May 10. I can't wait to see you there. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. The producers of this podcast recognize the traditional owners of the land on which it's recorded. They pay respect to the Aboriginal elders past, present and those emerging. The following podcast contains content of a graphic, violent nature and is not suitable for children. After, it was probably only five seconds, but you know it felt like five minutes, I suddenly was overcome with anger. And I turned around to him and screamed at the top of my lungs and pointed, get the fuck out of my house. Many of the amazing stories we hear every week on Australian True Crime are brought to us by you, our community of listeners. Often they're your stories. You can contact us by sending a direct message through Facebook or Instagram There are links in the show notes, of course, and you'll also find our email address there. It's hello at australiantruecrimepodcast.com. Today's guest, Kay, contacted us to tell us about her own true crime story, and it's the stuff of nightmares. 
Actually, it might be more accurate to say it's the stuff of movies. It's part tense, terrifying thriller and part horrible, cheesy, sexist, 80s cop buddy flick that your brother and his mates might have been obsessed with. You'll definitely notice the moment the script changes. This is Australian True Crime with Michelle Laurie and Emily Webb. We begin this episode with Kay artfully setting the scene for us, and she is without a doubt one of the best storytellers I've ever had the pleasure of listening to. Kay's not a professional storyteller. In fact, as we discovered, she didn't even like to tell this incredible story until fairly recently. I was only 25 when this incident happened. And I didn't talk about it a lot then. I felt some shame and embarrassment, which I will go into later. Mm. And what year is this, can we? 1987. Mm. And I was 25, as I said. I was, just to give you a little bit of background, which is relevant, I have two big brothers. At the time, I was living in North Fitzroy with my oldest brother, Ian. He and I are very close. After Ian comes Richard. Now, Richard was just around the corner. He was sharing a house with my best friend at that time. So back in those days, my brothers, myself, my friends, we were Going out in North Fitzroy oh, and Carlton and Brunswick and parties. People don't have parties anymore. No, I don't understand 80s, that. The 80s, oh. you're living with your brothers. This sounds amazing. It was amazing. I left home when I was 18 to start my nursing training. Back then we couldn't wait to get out of home and live in share houses and all that stuff. And do you know what? We grew up really fast. Yeah. Didn't we? Mm-hmm. My brother, so my brothers left home a little bit later because they both went to uni, stayed at home while they went to uni. Mm. But I did my training in the hospital, so. Training in what? Nursing. It is one of my, it's always been one of my life goals. I've always had two life goals. One was to be a mother, the other was to be a nurse. I love being nursing. And I would actually rather have my right arm cut off than be deregistered. Gosh. That's how much I love nursing. I'm really passionate about being a nurse. My mum was a nurse. So I don't know a lot about nursing training. But at 25, were you, you were qualified? You were working as a nurse? Totally. I finished my training in 1984. By 1987, I was working on a surgical ward on permanent night shift and I was an associate charge nurse, which these days they call an ANUM. So I was in charge of the ward on permanent night duty and I don't say that to boast or brag, I say that. Uh, for a reason which will be clear later. I used to set the alarm to wake up so that I wouldn't be late for work. We started at nine o'clock and I lived about a seven-minute drive from the hospital and I'd slept in. And I opened my eyes, the clock said it was quarter to nine and I went, ah! What was Ian doing for work, by the way? He was working as a sales rep at that time. He would have been great doing during lockdown because he used to work in his dressing gown on the couch on the phone. No mobiles in those days, just landlines. And his boss always thought he was at work. That's fine. And he used to ring up his clients. So was he home most of the time then? 
Oh, yes, most of the time he was home and he and I are really close still. We've always been very, very close. In fact, we were very, very close since I was two years old and he was seven. Oh, that's beautiful. When we were toddlers. I was a toddler and he's five years older than me. Uh, Yeah, we've always been really close. So anyway, this particular night I had slept in and my... We lived in a terrace house, which was your typical terrace house where you have a long skinny passage with all the bedrooms on the left-hand side when you enter the front door and nothing on the right-hand side. Then the passage opens up into a lounge room. You go through the lounge room. Then there's the dining room and the kitchen and the shower and bath and the toilet was purple <laughs> and it was outside on a kind of a backyard veranda situation. It was all... Yeah, would have been an outside dunny originally. Well, it was attached to the house. Yeah, yeah. But yes, exactly. So I did what I always did when I woke up. It was winter being July. It was winter, so it was dark when I woke up. And I would always, when the house was dark turn on my bedroom light and then turn on the passage light and turn on all the lights in the house, all the way down to the back of the house to jump in the shower. (laughs) So the house was lit up like a Christmas tree. Jumped in the shower, going to be late for work, oh, my God, trying to wash myself and I start hearing noises and by this time, by the way, I had realised that Ian was out. You've realised as you're walking to the shower because you traverse the entire house, that Ian's not home. Correct. So you're in the shower alone. Did you have the heebie-jeebies when you're in the house by yourself? And No. Okay, because I always think when I'm in the shower, I can hear noises. No. You're not that person? I wasn't until that day. Yeah, okay. Okay, cool. Not at all, because I was young and so carefree, yeah. apart from my work, which was obviously a very serious position that I held at work. But the nurses are always tough. You know what? Too. We worked really hard, but boy, did we play hard. <laughs> we really played hard. Yeah. So, no, I didn't have any mm-hmm. issues with that. And so I was in the shower and I heard a noise coming from elsewhere in the house and I thought, I wonder where Ian is and, God, he's making a racket opening the front door, that's really stupid. And then I kept showering and then I heard more noises and suddenly I thought, that's not Ian coming home. And I started to get scared. I quickly turned off the shower, grabbed my dressing gown, which was made of Terry Towling, one of those lovely 1980s dressing gowns, put that on, stepped out of the shower looked to my left where the mirror was and in the mirror I saw a man in the doorway of the bathroom and I froze and stared at him and he also froze and stared at me. And then after Probably. It was probably only five seconds, but, you know, it felt like five minutes. I suddenly was overcome with anger and I turned around to him and screamed at the top of my lungs and pointed, get the fuck out of my house. And he bolted towards the lounge room. 
I didn't know where he'd gone. I didn't know how we got in the house. I didn't know where he was in the house. All I knew was that he was no longer in the bathroom. I knew I had to call the police. And we didn't have mobile phones, only landlines that was in the lounge room. So I knew I had to go into the lounge room. I was really, really scared, but I had to do it. I walked into the lounge room. He wasn't in there. I was so relieved. I called Triple O, said, I'm a girl in a house alone and a man has just broken into my house. The operator took down my details and I, this was quite funny being back in 1987, I was so scared and I said to her, well, can you please send the police around as soon as possible? (laughs) And she said, well, yes, love, I'll get a message to them as soon as you hang up the phone so that I can let them know. (laughs) Oh, God, no. Surely you send the phone up. Oh, (gasps) God. Well, like they've only got one phone. Like, oh, my God, this is not. Well, apparently, apparently they only had one phone, I guess. So I hung up the phone and crouched in the corner of the lounge room and I saw a big pair of scissors that we had on the table and I grabbed the scissors. This is such a movie. This is like a movie. I was holding the scissors in my hands at my chest and I was shaking like this because I have never been so terrified Mm. in my entire life before that or since that, I had to think before I said that bit about since that, but no, I think I've never been that scared since that either. So I was sitting on the floor, crouching in the corner, waiting for the police to knock on the front door. That's what I thought would happen. There was no knock on the front door. However, there was a noise, another noise in the house and I could hear it was coming from the bedrooms which were at the front of the house and I thought, oh, my God, he's here or he's come back or he has someone else with him. I had no idea. So I knew that what I had to do was walk across the lounge room and look up the passage and I was really, really frightened but I just knew I had to do it. So I did, walked up across the lounge room, looked up the passage and my bedroom, as I'd said earlier, was the one at the front of the house with the window on the street and I saw creeping quietly out of my bedroom a different man. He looked a bit scruffy. He was kind of in jeans or tracky decks or something and he was overweight and and he had a gun. We'll be back in a moment with Kay who'll reveal the identity of the man with the gun in her hallway. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great 
great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Thank you to patrons Julia Cash, Amanda Bouchop, Eileen Walsh-Thomas, Amanda Fernley, Jessica, Cara Mockett, Jasmine Casici, Jamie, Jamie Lee Egan, Susan Wolfe, Catherine Londrigan, Sarah Lee Rose, Tom Sheridan, Haley Tolcher, and Sally Dowd. Before the break, we left Kay cowering in a corner of her lounge room. She was clutching a pair of scissors, having seen the face of a stranger in the bathroom mirror as she stepped out of her shower. To her horror, she then found herself looking down the hallway at another strange man, but this one had a gun and he was pointing it at her. He had a handgun, and he saw me. And I was standing at in the lounge room looking up the passage with the scissors like this. And when he saw me, he just pointed the gun at my head and started walking down the passage towards me. And never moving his gun away from my face at any time. But neither did he speak either. He did not say a word for that whole journey down the passage, which probably took 15 or 20 seconds and it felt like 15 years to me. I've never seen a gun before and he had it, as I say, pointed at my face was he shaking? Was the gun shaking? Or was no, it... wow. not at all. He was as cool as a cucumber. He was just walking towards me with his gun aimed at my head and he, he was walking slowly. I guess with hindsight, the reason he was walking slowly was because I was armed with a, a pair of scissors. I was still holding them at my chest. And... But he didn't speak and I didn't speak either because I couldn't speak. I had lost my voice completely. When he got very close to me, perhaps a metre and a half, I guess, still with the gun aimed at my face, all of a sudden my fear disappeared and this overwhelming, I will never forget this for as long as I live, this overwhelming sense of calm and resignation washed over me and it started in my head and it moved down to my toes. And I can remember thinking, I know that I'm going to die 
just hurry up and get it over with. I'll never forget it. They were the words I was thinking. It was at that point that I dropped the scissors and put my hands in the air. When I did that, he then he spoke and he said, do you live here? And I still couldn't speak because I'd lost my voice and I nodded and he said, oh, well, that's all right then. And he put his gun away. I found my voice and I said, who are you? And he said, oh, I'm a police officer. And I thought to myself, but you don't look like one because I thought that, I guess I was naive, I thought that police officers were fit and and trim. That was my perception at that age when I was 25. So I said, do you have any identification? And he went, touched his pockets in his pants, touched his breast pocket. Then he said, oh, no, no, I haven't. I've left it at home. Oh, my um, Well, then I found my voice. I put my arms around myself cuddling myself really tightly and started screaming at the top of my lungs and I was screaming at this stranger who'd been holding a gun on me, get out of my house, 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 over and over again really, really loudly. It was at that point that another plainclothes policeman entered the house from the back door and he came in and he said, calm down, love. We're all police officers. He's a police officer. Calm down. Then a third plainclothes policemen came in and then four uniformed police came in with two German shepherds. So there were seven police officers in my lounge room with two German shepherds and this is really funny because it was just at that point that Ian was driving home and the street we lived on in North Fitzroy is only one lane, it's quite narrow, and Ian could see that the street was blocked off by all these police cars and he thought, I wonder what's going on. And when he got to our house, he said, oh, my God, it's our house. And he saw the front door open, he saw my window was broken and he thought, what's going on? He walked down the passage, he walks into the lounge room, I'll never forget the expression on his face. He sees all these policemen and dogs and he had the most hilarious expression of stunned disbelief on his which for Ian you never see, it's really <laughs> rare for Ian. And he said, what's going on? He was amazed. I often think about that. Anyway, so. I feel like any, if if any one of those other six coppers had been the first in the house, it would have been better. Yeah. Like of all of Absolutely. the people who rolled up, I'm going to say eight coppers. I'm including the dogs. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> if any one of the others had been the first through the door, it would have been better than the fat bloke. He's no. like the worst one. Who's left his ID at home? He's oh, the sorry. worst one. Exactly. For them to have sent through first. Exactly. And the way he ent- he crept into the house so quietly right? really frightened me. That really scared me. I understood later that he had to do that on purpose because he... Yeah, but clearly you're not the offender. Like... Well, that's true. Uh, so, so fast forward about... Two hours, I 
as I said earlier, was on night shift. I put my uniform on because I had to go to the police station to make a statement and look at, at mug shots, but there was no way known I was going back home. I didn't want to be in that house in the dark. I was going to work until the sun rose. So I had my nurse's uniform on when I went to the police station and I was sitting in a room looking at mug shots to see if I could identify the offender. Now, this policeman who held the gun on me, I'll never forget his name, it was Paul. And he saw me sitting in this room because the door was open and he popped his head in and he said, oh, hi, Kay, how are you feeling? And I said, well, not too bad, thanks, Paul, no thanks to you. And he said, yeah, look, I got to apologise for that. I'm really sorry. But you know what, you've just got to understand that we have to assume that you're an, you're an accomplice until we can prove otherwise. And I said, with wet hair in a dressing gown? And he said, well, you never know. You never know. And we just have to make that assumption. And I said, okay, Paul, well, can you please do me a favour? And he said, anything, of course, anything. And I said, next time you hold a gun on an innocent woman in her own home, could you please have some ID on you? Yeah. And he said, oh, yeah. Oh, I'm so sorry about that. I left it on the dressing table. And then he walked off. So I went to work that night and in the morning after work, I obviously didn't get to work till about two o'clock in the morning, but the hospital was very understanding. Of course, I had called them. When I got home in the morning, I went into my bedroom and my bed was pushed right up against the window. That was its normal position. So my doona was covered in broken glass. It was, this was before the days of safety glass, of course. And there was, I remember looking at my bed and thinking, that man walked over my bed. Paul? Did, is that the way he came in as well? Did he? Yes, that's the way Both Paul came in, but that's how the intruder got yeah. into And that was the noise I heard when I was in the shower was yes. him smashing the window. Yeah. So I gathered all my bedding together, put them in the car and drove home to mum and dad. And I knocked on the front door, which I never do. We kids always used to just open the door at mum and dad's place and walk in. But this morning was different. And I knocked on the door and mum answered the door and she got the shock of her life to see me there in my uniform at half past eight in the morning holding all my bed linen in my arms. And she said, darling, what's happened? And that's when I burst into tears. And I just said, mum, can you please... Wash my sheets. Oh, yeah. God, fancy so, telling your mum this whole story. Yeah. So, of course, mum and dad were great. I think it was that day I was sitting in the kitchen. I told mum and dad everything that had happened and mum said to me, darling, you should get some counselling because when something like this happens to you, the sooner you get counselling, the better. And in those days, you know, counselling wasn't a big thing like it is now and you certainly didn't tell people. I was thinking that. That's a good attitude from your parents. Your mum was way ahead of her time. On the money. Very ahead of her time. But mum is a nurse and she's also a very astute, very, very intelligent woman. Yeah, And she's, yes, she's beautiful. 
And I found a psychologist in the Yellow Pages, so I called him, made an appointment, went along for my first appointment. That was fine. We talked a little bit. He seemed okay. Turned up the following week for my second appointment and we were chatting and I was telling him all about my anxiety attacks and he pulled out a prescription pad and said, would you like me to prescribe some Tenormin for you. What's that now? Right, never heard of it. Tenormin is a drug, its generic name is atenolol, and it's given for irregular heartbeats and things like that. But it can be given in low doses for anxiety. It's like a sedative? No, not like a sedative. Just, it's not a tablet you would take where you would immediately, within 20 minutes, feel something different. You wouldn't feel anything different. It, it would just have this kind of long-term effect and would help your anxiety. So I believe. However, psychologists, in my opinion, I, I was a nurse. I, I knew Tenorman. I used to give Tenorman out to my patients at, in the hospital. I didn't think psychologists could write prescriptions no, for drugs. psychiatrists normally, right? Correct. Mm. A psychiatrist is a doctor. Mm. Psychologists are not doctors. There's a big difference between a psychiatrist and a psychologist. And so I asked him that. I said, are you allowed to prescribe drugs? And he said, yeah, I'm a vet. <laughs> <laughs> he said, oh, just a few, not many, but we are allowed to prescribe a few. And bear in mind that in those days, prescription pads were blank. They didn't have the doctor's details stamped oh. on them. Yes. So looking back, I, I just think he pinched it. Blimey. From somewhere, you know, a blank one. Jesus. Anyway, I said to him, no, I thank you. I don't want any Tenormin, any Atenolol. No, thank you. And then he told me that one of his methods in his um, counselling was to give a massage. Oh, oh no. And oh, I said, no. What kind of massage? And he said, oh, don't worry, you don't take off any of your clothes. And I, at the time, I was wearing a pair of jeans and, I, and a singlet top because he, his house was quite warm. So oh, I you're in his house? Yeah. It was like a front room, a lounge room or something. Mm. So he said it's just... A massage. I, I just like to massage people's shoulders and their neck because it relaxes them and it's just part of what I do. And you don't take any of your clothes off, of course. And he had a massage table. So I said, oh, okay. So I got up on the massage table and he gave me a five-minute massage of my neck and my shoulders. And he said, oh, yes, you are tense, which is understandable, and that was that. I went home. Now, bear in mind, I'd never had counselling in my life. I'd never seen a counsellor before, so I, I had nothing to go by. I didn't know what to expect. The following week, I went back for my third visit, and we talked some more, and then he said, now I'd like to, now it's time for me to do another massage. And again, I was wearing a singlet top. So I said, okay, naively, and I got up on his massage table, and he was he gave me a massage of my neck and my shoulders and my arms, going down my arms, and it went longer. 
So I said to him, I think that's enough now. And he said, no, no, a little bit longer. And he kept massaging me and then he started massaging my back through my clothes. But his hands were moving down my back and going down my arms. And I said a second time, I think that's enough now. And he said, no, I'll be the judge of that. So he kept massaging me. And after about another two minutes, I just thought, I'm not doing this. And I said, stop, please. I want you to stop. And he did. And I left. And I never went back. It just It's really interesting because we had a conversation recently with a man who works in uh, interviewing sex offenders and we were talking about, well, he was explaining to us how offenders like, for, and he used the example of a massage therapist who was offending against women and his technique was testing in little ways like that and it was testing women's boundaries and it was testing with little ways like suggesting to them that they take all their clothes off instead of just their bra or and then not leaving the room when they were getting changed, just turning his back. And just testing little tests like that just to see when, how far he could go before they said, stop, I'm not feeling comfortable. And especially if this guy knew that you were going to keep coming back, he knew he had probably week after week to just push you a little further, push you a little further. So... Obviously, you had great boundaries, but sometimes when people have been groomed previously by other offenders is what this man was saying to us, that this is how other offenders can figure out, oh, this woman doesn't have strong boundaries, so they can keep pushing you. And that makes a lot of sense. And I wouldn't be at all surprised if that was this guy's MO. For sure. Was he a psychologist? Did you ever find out, was he a legit psychologist? That's so interesting you ask that, Emily, because uh, he, he wrote a report for me for the Crimes Compensation Tribunal and he lists his qualifications on the report. And he wrote a nice report that helped me. He said that I suffer panic attacks and so on. But recently I tried to Google him and I couldn't find him anywhere. Anywhere. He's not registered with the regulatory body for psychologists. He's not. He has no digital footprint that a civilian can find. That's weird. So what it meant was I was unwilling to go to any more counselling with anybody after that. And I, I feel that I'm, I'm really angry at that man because I feel that he robbed me of a PTSD diagnosis and appropriate PTSD treatment. And I know that PTSD was only really kind of recognised in Australia uh, in the 90s, mid-90s. But nonetheless, in 1987, there I imagine it still would have been helpful to me if I had been diagnosed with some after effects from trauma. Oh, yeah. Or something Having like that. Having a proper yeah. counsellor of any kind. Correct. So I, so about 20 years later, I was telling a psychologist this story and she said, you had PTSD. And I said, yeah, I guess I did. Mm-hmm. Because I could not be in the house after dark under any circumstances. I would have a panic attack. I just was too scared. I certainly, certainly could not have a shower in the dark, even if Ian was home, 
for months and months and months because every time I got into the shower, I heard glass breaking. Yeah, totally. And it just went on for such a long time. It it went on for years. I, I couldn't be in a house alone at night for years. I certainly couldn't sleep in any, not just my, that house, any house, all night long by myself for many, many, many years, probably 15. It really so disrupted my life because I couldn't shower unless Ian was in the house and I couldn't shower after dark. I had shampoo, conditioner and towel at Richard's house around the corner all the time. So I'd go to his house to have a shower. So a lot of strategies you're employing Absolutely. to kind of just that management, yeah. isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. But the biggie was the nights when Ian just couldn't be home in um, summer. It doesn't get dark till 9 o'clock and my shift started at 9 o'clock, so that was fine. But in winter it gets dark earlier and there were some nights when Ian just couldn't juggle his work life balance, which I totally got, and I didn't know what to do. So often I used to go to work two hours or one and a half hours early. Mm. And because I was in charge, I was hoping I could kind of, I don't know what I was hoping. I was really embarrassed doing this, but what I would do is get to work an hour and a half or two hours early and gather all the patients' files together and take them into the conference room and study all the patients' files because being in charge, you had to know everything about all the, there were 31 patients, you know. But it was really, really embarrassing, really embarrassing. I I remember feeling embarrassed in front of my colleagues on afternoon shift who were giving me sideways looks. Like, why is she in? Exactly. She's not due for two hours. Is she a suck or... Is she a nutter? But I had to get out of the house, didn't have anywhere else to go. So, But you wanted to look like you were there for a reason. Mm. Yeah, Yeah. exactly, which is why being in charge was kind of good because I'd pretend that I was. Mm. Anyway, um, How long did all that last? Like yeah. when do you think you, if if ever, I mean, you know, sort of overcame it or moved on to another level from that that level of trauma? The being in house alone after dark bit mm. probably only lasted a few years, maybe two or three years. Mm. Maybe four. I can't remember. Did you think the police would catch him? Like, was there a period of time where you were like ringing them up and going, "What's going on? Have you got him?" Like, what's? Were you waiting for that to happen? Or? Do you know I wasn't? Mm. And I think the reason for that is because I was m- much more traumatized by the gun. Oh, yeah. that's so fascinating. Okay, wow. so the intruder was really terrifying. Mm. He was really scary. But he didn't have a weapon that I could see anyway. And I never saw him again. He must have left the property. 
But I had a gun held at my head for a considerable time. That's so fascinating. In my mind anyway. Yeah, I never. Because it's like your worst, you know, that image, just get out of the shower, look in the mirror, that is like pretty much your worst nightmare, isn't it? Yeah, in my imagination, that guy's the one who's broken into your house the other one's a misunderstanding, but I'm not I'm not understanding the impact mm. of the gun before you realised, you know, before you knew the truth of the situation. So I think had I thought to myself, oh, that guy coming out of my bedroom in plain clothes mm. with a gun is wearing a suit and has a short haircut and a mo. Yeah, he looks, looks like, like a, a police officer. Yeah. I might not have been so frightened or if he had come out of his my bedroom with a gun and immediately spoken to me and said, I'm a police officer, hands up, yeah. whatever it is he they say. a job. Yeah. yeah, not great. Would have been fine. I think it's I a really – Drop the scissors and put my hand up. But he didn't speak. And if you didn't drop the scissors, he could have shot you in the head, frankly. Exactly. So why didn't he give you the opportunity at the outset? Surely that would have been the thing to do, to identify yourself as the person who lived there, as the resident who had called the police. But I think it's a really interesting insight into the human mind and the way it works is that what really happened, the truth of the situation is irrelevant. What traumatised you was that moment in the hallway. It's not what really happened. It's not what what we perceived as the scariest moment, what your mind has turned into this decades of um, fear-based reactions. That's so fascinating, isn't it? It was those seconds in the hallway. And it's so interesting, Michelle, that you put it that way, but I think I know exactly what you mean and I think I know why. The reason is because all of us know how scary it would be for us to get out of the shower and see an intruder in the bathroom Mm. and seeing him in the mirror is even worse because that's what they do in Hollywood. We've seen that happen so many times on movies Mm. that that's a reality that could happen to any of us at any time and it's not uncommon probably if you looked at police statistics you know, a lot of houses get broken into. Mm. Yeah, particularly in that, I'm going to say in that neighbourhood in the 80s yeah. I'm assuming he was trying to burg- you know, yes. burglarise the house. He's probably a junkie. Yes. That's probably what was happening. I agree. Yeah. However, having a, having a man approach you with a gun pointed at your head f- with, a, with a long period of silence and not speaking, that now that is not something that you guys can probably get your head around because that's not something that you see in movies all the time. Yeah. That's not something that you think, well, gee, I better make sure I do something to prevent that because there's nothing you can do. Every night we lock our house. We think, okay, I don't want an intruder in my home, so I will lock my house and and I will lock my window. Yeah. But because an intruder in the house is something that you can relate to. And you chose what to do about it. You turned around to him and said, get the fuck out of my house. It's like, yeah, yeah, you you could deal with that. Well, I was still terrified. Yeah. Yeah. Because I didn't know if he was in the house or not. Mm. But I tell you what, as soon as I saw that gun pointed at me, the terror of the intruder 
faded mm. in comparison. Yeah. And I consider myself as a near miss when you um, think about police shootings. Yes. We all know that in the 80s yep. and early 90s there were lots of Victorian fatal police shootings. There were inquiries. There was a royal commission. People had a, you know, a butter knife and things that later the community said, hang on a minute, really? I mean, there's no, did you really looked at that and thought that you were in danger when you shot that mentally ill guy who had a butter knife? And, you know, we on this show, we have a great relationship with Vic Pohl and police say to us, hey, look, come on, you guys don't know what it's like. It's a split second thing. Our training kicks in or when someone's lunging at you with a knife, you're not ta- you don't have the time to assess what kind of knife it is. Like we accept that too. But yes, I understand what you're saying. At that time, there were, there were a number of police shootings of, of civilians where in the final wash up, they either didn't have weapons or the weapons they had were were not dangerous weapons. And so I agree with you. I have the utmost respect for Vic Pohl now. Yeah. I work, actually work in emergency and so I right, see so police see all the time. You see them all the yeah. time. They're fantastic. And I totally understand what the police mean when they say someone's lunging at you with a knife. We don't have time to think about anything else. We Our training kicks in and we pull the trigger. What I'm talking about is people who have a pair of scissors like me or a mentally ill patient who has a butter knife who is metres and metres away. A, a butter knife or a pair of scissors are not going to kill the police officer if it's six metres away. Well, and as but you a said, bullet will kill me yes. if it's six metres away. And, and, and I must remind everyone that you had turned on all the lights in your house yes. on the way through the first time. So that the house was completely lit as this officer was walking down the long hallway and you were down the other end in your dressing gown with your wet hair, with your scissors. It was the 80s and they didn't have capsicum spray then and they didn't have tasers and they needed a Royal Commission and thank goodness they had one. Just before we let you go, That cheesy 80s cop movie, it's got one final scene left to play out and it's quite something. We think you'll want to hear it and maybe even give your brother a call. It would be remiss of me though not to take this opportunity to remind you that you can see everyone's favourite real-life cop, Narelle Fraser, live on stage at the Yarraville Club in a couple of weeks' time with us, Emily and I that is. There's a link in the show notes so that you can get your tickets. And now back to Kay for one last amazing story. I'm no shrinking violet and I wasn't back then either. I had done my nursing training in a hospital, a big hospital, starting at, we were 18, we were kids, and we were jumping on people's, real people's chests who were dead and doing CPR at the age of 18. And we were laying out dead bodies and we had loved ones crying on our shoulders in next to a dead body in a bed at the age of 18. My nursing training was really, really confronting. So by the time this intruder broke into my home, I had been through all that. And can I also add, they were the best three yeah, years of my life. Yeah, yeah. They were really, really hard, but my God, they were fabulous. Did you get married? I didn't get married until I was 36. Yeah, so you did marry. Later. Yes, yeah, yeah. yes, mm. yes. Much, much later. Because I was going to ask you if you married a copper. 
Because so many coppers married nurses. Oh, yeah. It's so funny you should say that because back in the day, in the 80s, the cops really liked nurses. Yes. In fact, there was a, the pub that we heard. used to go to. Yes. You've heard about that? Well, but, yeah, we, we hear that a yeah. lot, yeah. About the sign they had? No. No. Oh, okay. There was a pub near the hospital that had a sign in the window that said, Something, I can't remember exactly, something along the lines of, hey, guys, come on in, nurses drink here. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Nurses and, are very uh, Which was pretty outrageous. Mm. It was true. We did drink there, but yeah. it was so sexist. In those days, most nurses were female and yeah. most cops were male. Yeah. Let's face it. Yeah. That, they, they're the stats, right? Yeah, totally, Yeah. And when I was in the police station looking through the mug shots and after Paul and I had the conversation where I'd asked him, in future, can you please carry your ID? And he walked away. Another policeman who I hadn't met saw me sitting in the room in my nurse's uniform and he popped in and said hello to me. So I said, oh, hi, I just have to look at these photos. And he said, that's okay. Are you a nurse, are you? And I said, yes, I'm a nurse. And he said, oh, look, that's great. We're having the policeman's ball in November. Can I give you these tickets? Can you please take them to work and give them to your nursing friends? And I can remember looking at this guy thinking to myself, I've just had an intruder break into my house and confront me in the bathroom and a gun held at my head by your colleague and you're practically flirting yeah. with me? Yeah, he's thinking, yeah, you'll be right by November, won't you? Yeah, you'll be right. Yeah. I mean, it's months away, babe. I couldn't believe yeah. it. I just took the tickets. Take your mind off it. Yeah. <laughs> I'll cheer you up, if anything. I just took the tickets off him. And said, sure. Yeah. Do you like blondes or redheads? Like, what are you after? And when I left the police station and walked past the waste paper basket, I just went like oh, that. Good on oh, you. <laughs> oh, I thought God. there was no way I was going to hand out yeah. tickets. What was I going to do? Go back to, go to work that night and say, oh, yeah, look, I know you've all heard I've had an intruder and. And I've had a, a gun held at me and so on and so forth. Yeah, I've had a really terrible night. But, hey, listen, do you want to go to the policeman's ball? It's in November. Yeah. I've got some free tickets. <laughs> yeah. As if. Yeah. Thank you, Kay, for contacting us and for the brilliant storytelling. If you have a true crime story of your own, we would definitely like to hear about it. You can send us a direct message on our socials or email us at hello at australiantruecrimepodcast.com. Thank you to our patrons, I Spy Paikai, Kelly Robertson, Haley, Megan Emily Stack, Jess, Rachel Williams, Lynette Sykes, Amelia Whiteley, Marie, Anna Stone, LJ and Belinda Jones. And thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime. We'll be back next week. This has been another Smartfella production in conjunction with the Acast Creator Network. Hold up. 
Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Australian True Crime, the nation's leading independent true crime podcast, is hitting the road with our live show. We're coming to Sydney, Melbourne, and Brisbane this July, and tickets will be available starting May 10th at 9.30am sharp. They sold out in two hours last time, so do not dilly-dally. We know the suburbs of Australia are teeming with some of the most intriguing and chilling true crime stories the world has ever heard. Don't miss the chance to dive deeper and get involved with a live Q&A. With over a million and a half downloads monthly, these tickets will sell out. So keep an eye on our social media pages and check the podcast bio for direct links to purchase yours as soon as they're released on Friday, May 10. I can't wait to see you there.